Welcome to today's conversation in our After the Curve, the Changing Face of Healthcare podcast series. Today's focus is providers after the curve. We're excited to bring you perspectives from McDermott's health law partners on how provider organizations can innovate their business models and care delivery to adapt and thrive in a post-COVID-19 world. I'm Leslie Tulio, Chief Marketing Officer for McDermott. Joining me today are partners Sandy DeVarco and Emily Cook. Emily, Sandy, thanks so much for joining us. Sandy, let's dive right in uh, on playbooks. In the After the Curve report, you discussed the idea that the government should develop pandemic playbooks for hospitals and other providers to use. Talk to me a little bit about what these playbooks might look like, what value they have for those organizations, and perhaps for the broader community. Sure. Thanks, Leslie. I think when we talk about playbooks in the context of the After the Curve report, what we're referring to is hoping and looking forward to the government and regulatory bodies that regulate healthcare needing to work more and coordinate better to communicate with healthcare providers in situations that are national in scope. Previously, the way that regulations and regulatory flexibilities came about in times of emergency were very localized regional, perhaps. There was a hurricane, there was a tornado, there was forest fires like we're experiencing now on the West Coast. And it was easy for the government, being state and federal governments, to communicate with healthcare providers in those discrete locations about what they needed to do and what flexibilities would be afforded to them to operate under those exigent circumstances. What we saw and have continued to see during the COVID-19 public health emergency that is national in scope is a challenge in the terms of how those regulatory bodies communicated with providers, how those providers were able to ask questions and get feedback. And while things improved over time, I think this national pandemic has demonstrated an opportunity for the government to look at how it communicates that information, issues it to providers, and how those providers can react to it in a way that's far more uh, comprehensive and also easier for providers to handle. So knowing, as we do now from COVID, that there are certain types of waivers and regulatory flexibilities that are incredibly important to providers in these circumstances, our suggestion is that you call it a playbook, call it planning, whatever you want to call it, that there would be benefit to there being better organization to make that process more clear. It's going to make it easier for for providers to provide services in these times and easier for the regulatory bodies to keep track of what's going on. Emily, do you have thoughts on the playbook and planning pieces here? One of the areas where we saw and continue to see significant challenges to healthcare providers is in both the sheer volume of information that is being conveyed, as well as the dynamic nature of that information. And while providers, I believe, have generally been uh, encouraged that the government has been so responsive to their needs and to the changing nature of the healthcare services that may need to be provided in response to this particular public health emergency. Many of them have found it to be very difficult to ensure that they understand on a day-to-day basis what the expectations are for the way in which they provide healthcare services, specifically which provisions may have been waived, the way in which they have been waived, and what the risks may be for failing to comply with provisions that are changing on sometimes a day-to-day basis. 
Yeah, during the early stages of the pandemic, when some of these regulatory matters were coming to the fore, there would literally be numerous times during the day when there would be an email or an update to a government website or someone indicating they had seen something else somewhere else, as Emily said, which made providers and those like us who were attempting to assist and counsel them, we literally had to scramble to try to figure out where things were, where they were posted, who they applied to, and whether or not they were actually valid at any given time. And if there were any conditions, there was really no consistency in how that information was conveyed. Uh, And things would be updated, sometimes within 24 hours, with no indication of what had changed. There would simply be an update. So it became very challenging for providers, our clients, and those advising them who wanted to do the right thing and follow all the rules to be able to actually do so. So one of the things I think hopefully will come out of this experience from the government's standpoint is to make sure that there is more consistent communication and the ability for providers of all types to try to determine how they can operate going forward. Well, speaking of operations, Emily, you certainly touched on it in your earlier comment, this idea that people were having to adjust to the way in which they were providing services and which waivers were affected. And and certainly that brings telehealth top of mind to me and I think to a lot of consumers, right, during the pandemic who use telehealth who perhaps hadn't before. Can you talk to us a little bit about the rapid and, and pretty robust uptick in telehealth and how you think that's impacting the industry and and certainly from a regulatory perspective? Sure. So we saw an an almost overnight pivot in the government's approach to telehealth services. So prior to the public health emergency, there was coverage from federal health care programs of telehealth. And at the state level through the Medicaid program, it was in some states quite robust. On the Medicare side, through the Medicare program, it was significantly more limited. And With the public health emergency and the concerns with having patients come into a healthcare facility, either to prevent patients becoming infected in a healthcare facility or to keep potentially infected patients at home, the need arose to provide services to the patients in their home through telehealth. And the good news there was that much of the infrastructure was already in place, much of the technology was already in place. The missing piece historically had been the reimbursement and coverage component. And so healthcare providers were able to adopt and transition very quickly to providing those services to the patients in their home. And we saw that occurring before, in some cases, there was actually clear guidance from the government as to how those services would be paid and how those services would be covered. And that really is a credit to the providers. I think we've seen throughout this public health emergency, that their first interest has always been care for the patients. And as we've seen this evolve, the providers have now been modifying, they've been adopting their individual policies, they've been adapting the way in which they provide services to meet the way in which the government is now covering and paying for those services. What will be interesting to see is what happens after the public health emergency ends. So we are hearing from our clients that they are learning that their patients do very much like receiving patient care in their home, that in many cases, even when it may not be necessitated by the COVID public health emergency, that patients will likely want to continue to receive services in their home. Providers, in some cases, have been providing services from their homes and would very much like to continue to work from home as we have all become accustomed to 
during the public health emergency. We are seeing that the government um, has indicated that they are interested in preserving some of the reimbursement and coverage for telehealth services in the non-facility setting. So particularly, again, when we have a physician office visit that may be being provided through telehealth, there does seem to be significant interest in continuing to provide for that opportunity going forward. The component of the telehealth arrangements that have been adopted during the public health emergency that does remain more uncertain are those circumstances where hospitals and other facilities have been providing hospital services and other historically institutional services to patients in their home. And that component of the telehealth changes that we've seen during the public health emergency, my expectation is that we will not see the same level of continuation of those services. Currently at the federal level, there is a general view that hospital services are expensive. There is increasingly less interest in paying for services that can be furnished in a non-hospital setting, in a hospital setting at what are typically higher hospital rates. Currently, again, we are seeing the opportunity for hospitals and other facilities to provide those services to the patient in the patient's home and receive payment at those higher hospital rates. And I do think that that is one component that we will likely not see continue in the same way that it is currently being implemented during the pandemic. But it will be interested to see which components of that may be preserved and whether we may see some expansion of the opportunity to provide, again, historically facility services, historically services that you would only think of as being provided in a hospital to patients in other care settings, including their homes. And I don't think you can get away from that. I mean, there's the, I've said it more than one time on this aspect of patient care, looking at it from the patient perspective, you know, the genie is out of the bottle, so to speak. And the adoption by patients, you know, the providers, as Emily said, pivoted, you know, almost seamlessly to providing this type of care even before the government caught up with reimbursement. But the adoption by, even by groups that were sort of previously dismissed as, oh, they'll never go for telehealth, like, you know, senior citizens, uh, you know, individuals who are older, you know, no, I want to see my doctor or I want to be there in person, you know, that has effectively gone away. And you've now got, you know, all demographic spectrum of patients that want this type of care, don't want to have to leave the house, don't want to have to travel 40 minutes to have something checked out when they can just log on to a computer, you know, from home or even from their workplace and, and get the care they need and have that interaction. So, that aspect of things, I think there's going to be enough consumer demand and expectation that there'll have to be something that survives, how it's paid for, and to what extent, if it goes you know, all the way along the provider spectrum, as Emily identified, remains to be seen. So we've talked a lot here in another podcast about the consumer aspects and the quick consumer adoption of, of telehealth. We've talked less about, and I just want to touch on briefly, Sandy or Emily, feel free to jump in. What are the benefits here to hospitals, right? We're talking about physicians likely keeping much of this telehealth in place, but perhaps less so in a non-facility setting. What have been historically, historically in the last six months, what have been the benefits to hospitals, both then when we started this global health emergency and, and in the future? I think one of the main things that has been of help to a hospital and clients and just things we've seen in the industry have been deepening relationships with the consumer so having different modalities available and having that quick outreach, you have numerous touches with the patient, you're able to provide other types of care, get them referrals within your system you know, to really build your brand recognition and trust with the patients. I think that's a, a big thing and a benefit to hospitals you know, outside of whatever the reimbursement scheme may look like. I think it's also something that helps 
providers or grow their database of knowledge about patients and information in their communities that will help them with program development going forward and some of their strategic planning to understand what their community needs really are beyond the community health needs assessment they have to prepare ordinarily. It's just another way, I think, to to build that brand recognition, get the patient more enmeshed within the hospital and to, to build their own recognition. I think in addition to some of the patient benefits that that Sandy just mentioned, and, and again, some of the organizational and planning aspects, we are also seeing that there are some, some clinical benefits to providing these services. One component of our clients that I've been working with very closely on some of these models are those clients that are providing services to medically fragile patients. And so for some of our clients, the opportunity to continue to provide services to the patient in their home where they may not be needing to come into a facility where there are other patients, where there is infection risk, where the travel itself to get to the facility may present clinical challenges, I think has been very appealing to both the providers and the patients. And in addition, as a more practical matter, the other aspect is space. So certainly we've seen a trend in the healthcare sector towards reduced inpatient volumes to moving things to more ambulatory settings, that has already significantly reduced the structural footprint of many of the hospital facilities that we see today. And I think this move towards the opportunity to provide services in the patient's home will continue that progression. So to the extent that there are real estate costs, there are space costs, there are facility costs associated with operating an actual hospital facility, we may see some of those needs change. And I know that in talking with some of our provider clients and even just talking with consultants and other individual stakeholders in this space, there is a very much emerging new look at what does the hospital of the future look like? There was already a lot of discussion about changes in the delivery of clinical care services in the hospital setting. And I think we're going to see that shifting even more so that the hospital that you think of in your mind when you think of what a hospital looks like is not going to be what a hospital looks like in the next even five years, 10 years. So we don't know much these days, but we know hospitals are changing forever and that telehealth is here to stay, right? We feel feel pretty confident about those too. I think that is probably a a safe bet. (laughs) Absolutely. Good. Having confidence around something we know right now in the future, I think is good. Before we wrap up today's conversation, I'd love to just get closing thoughts from both of you on the one or two things leaders of hospitals, health systems, or other providers that you're serving need to be mindful of as we do continue to move through this pandemic and hopefully well beyond it into the new normal. So Sandy, can I ask you to to start us off? Sure. I mean, I, I think flexibility, while it sounds trite, is is going to remain a key feature and a key skill set for healthcare provider executives in, in these times. There is so much that is changing. People talk about a first wave, a second wave, the continuing wave of COVID. We've got returning to work, returning to providing elective care. There is so much that is happening that that flexibility and being able to, as much as you can, particularly in a large organization, remain nimble and working with your team to stay on top of things is incredibly important. While there was a tsunami, not to bring another sort of disaster into things, but a tsunami of information and regulatory changes early in the pandemic and things on that front have somewhat quieted down, there are still going to continue to be these ongoing challenges. In addition, it's incredibly important for healthcare leaders to be attentive to what they have done insofar as they have availed themselves of regulatory flexibilities over time. 
because, knock wood, if this pandemic does indeed start to scale back, those flexibilities too will have a shelf life, an expiration date, and the need to track them and know what's going on in your organization so that you can scale them back accordingly and be able to go back to your normal operations, I think is an important feature that is not always top of mind, but is something that people need to keep in mind as they move forward. Great. So flexibility and scalability, Emily. Sure. And I would just say building on Sandy's last comment, really maintaining that inventory of what was changed and how in response to this public health emergency will benefit providers, not just in terms of understanding what may need to be unwound when the public health emergency ends, what may need to be documented for potential enforcement risk, but also what they may need to prepare for next time. Um, Again, I think it's very clear, as we discussed at the outset, that this is likely not the last time that we are going to be facing um, a public health emergency, either localized or national. And to the extent that there are the opportunities to learn lessons into how to better respond at the facility level for next time, that will really help serve hospitals well. So that does really bring us full circle back to that idea of the benefit of playbooks and, and knowing more for the next time, right? Sandy, Emily, thanks again for joining us today, for sharing your insights and your perspectives. Thanks, too, for our listeners for tuning in. For more insight and analysis about the state of healthcare after the curve, you can check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Sciences News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott, Will & Emery and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of the consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2020, McDermott, Will & Emery, all rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott, Will & Emery is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.